One Hope Church. It's a privilege to be here with you uh, this morning here in Athens, Georgia. Um, last half of January, once again, another day where we could be outside, a little chilly, but not too bad, and uh, we can come and worship the Lord together, and it's a great privilege to be able to do so. Um, Last week, we had a tough passage as we looked in Genesis 18 and 19 at uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot, um, and a couple of of his family members being rescued, and um, destruction on the rest for their their wickedness and their violence. And then um, we finished last week with, um, you know, Lot, you know, being told, flee up to the mountains. And he says, no, well, there's this, I don't want to go to the mountains. You know, something bad might happen to me there. There's this little place called Zoar. Let me go there. And so um, he's allowed to go there. And that's where we'll pick up this morning in Genesis chapter 19, verse 30. Um, but as we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll get into our passage this morning. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to come together this morning to look into your word and to learn from it. We pray, Lord, that, again, it's another hard passage. It's, an, it's uncomfortable. It's stuff that we don't want to read about or talk about necessarily. But so important for us to learn the lessons um, and, and to be able to apply those in our own culture, uh, to, in our own time. So please help us do that faithfully, um, that is consistent with your word, and help us to do so according um, to the power of your Holy Spirit and to live it out according to the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So yes, again, this morning... Um, we have a uh, another one of these passages where the 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 topic of the what happens of it is is uncomfortable, and it's uncomfortable because you know, there's a, a lot of you know sin um, involved. And whenever we're reading about sin, and then you know the tragic consequences of sin, um, that should cause us to be like, oh, you know, I really don't don't like that. Um, should be a natural reaction for us. And it's sad to read what happens, you know, in, in this passage. Um, but let's, um, let's get right into it. So beginning in verse 30 of Genesis chapter 19, it says, Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. So he didn't, we see there right off the bat, he doesn't stay long in the place. He's like, you know, look, I don't want to go up into the mountains. I want to go to the city. You know, he's a city guy and um, he's comfortable in that sort of environment. He had, you know, lived in Sodom. Um, And so he was comfortable with, you know, that way of life. And he was afraid to go and, and, and be separated up into the mountains. And so, yet he realizes, obviously, he says he was afraid to live in Zoar, that, hey, the people here are, are wicked as well. You know, he view, views, you know, that his life and perhaps the, the lives of his daughters are in danger here. And so then he actually does do what he was supposed to do in the first place, which was go up into the mountains. 
Now this is where it gets sad. Verse 31, Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there was no man on the earth to come into us as is the custom of all the earth. Come let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. So it happened on the next night that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that he may, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger she also bore a son and called his name Beth Ami. And he is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. That's an incredibly sad you know, passage um, of scripture. Um, and, and one thing I just want to say here at the beginning, this is one of the reasons why we know that we can trust what the Bible says is true is because when the biblical characters do what's right, the scripture tells us. And when the biblical characters do what is wrong, if something bad happens, the scripture tells us. doesn't hide the truth. But the truth comes to the light in the scripture. You see, even characters who Lot is called a righteous man, this is a this is a great failure. This is a, a huge problem. And yet it is given you know to us so that we would learn from it and that the history of what actually happened is not hidden. This should give us confidence that the historical accounts that we read in our scripture are true to what happened. Because even if it puts certain characters into a negative light or a portion of their life in a negative light, the light still is shown on it and we see it. The scripture certainly isn't telling us that this is good. It just is telling us what happened. And again, in the context, you know, as, as Moses writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know, we end up in the law, this specific thing being prohibited, um, you know, in the law. If there's a law against something, there's a reason normally that that law had to be written, right? Right? The law had to be written because people had done these sorts of things. So it was necessary to, to have the law. Now there's a few, there's a lot that we can learn here, so I don't want us to overlook what, what there is to learn. The first is, you know, Lot opened up the door of opportunity for this great sin through, hit, through getting drunk. Drunkenness throughout the scripture is simple. You know, wine is a mocker. It's um, you know, we are instructed to be very careful. Now, for those who would say, um, you know, don't drink anything at all, 
well, that's really not the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching throughout scripture is moderation. We should remember that Jesus turned water to wine and it was the real deal. Okay, it wasn't some, it wasn't grape juice, you know, sort of. He didn't turn, Jesus didn't turn water into grape juice. Jesus turned water into wine, right, for the wedding at, at Cana. Um, so you cannot argue that it's just sinful to ever have a drop of it. Now, if your conscience, if you have a conviction that you shouldn't, and then you do, well, that's a sin, right? Because you viol- violated your conscience. But if you don't have, if you have not been given a, a special conviction that you shouldn't do that, well, you don't have to, you know, worry about sinning if you if you do have a drink. But drunkenness is always a sin. You know, and we, and we read this passage. You know, we we happen to have um, a cultural awareness because we live in a university town that, on a regular basis, in our city, people get drunk to the point that they are functional, like functioning. But they are not cognitively aware of what they are doing, nor will they remember it the next day. It's a sad thing. I've never understood this, where people would be like, well, we went out and partied last night. Now I need somebody else to tell me how much fun we had. Because I don't remember anything. That doesn't sound like fun to me. I've never understood how that sounds like fun to anybody to not be able to recall the activities of the of the night prior, I, I don't, I don't view that as, but yet culturally, it's very normal in our society. And um, the United States is kind of a, a little bit of an outlier on the the numbers of we of people that we have who think it's just normal to to get blackout drunk. Now, how do you avoid that? Well, you avoid that by not getting tipsy drunk, <laughs> by not getting tipsy. Um, you know, you should not, we should not, as followers of Jesus, should not ever, you know, be drinking for the purpose of having a buzz or to alter our state of emotions or feeling. If you get to the point where you need to drink in order to relax, that's a problem. If you need to drink in order to feel comfortable in situations, that's a problem. You see, that's an identity and Jesus issue that is trying to be solved through a bottle instead of being solved at the foot of the cross. You know, we have to be very, very careful. And if you know that you are prone to excess, well, then it's better not to have it all than to have the potential of being foolish. I hope we can all agree on that, but each one has to know their own um, self before the Lord to know what is acceptable and what is not acceptable before the Lord. And to be true to that and not to make um, excuses or exceptions. Oh, it'll be okay this time. See, the enemy always wants us to think, it'll be okay this time. It, you'll be able... You see, when it comes to sin, 
The enemy's great lie is that you're in control and you can stop anytime you want. If you start saying the words, oh, I can do this again, it's okay, and I can stop anytime I want, well, you know you are already in when you say those words, well, I can stop anytime I want. That means, means oh, buddy, you need help right then. Go ask for help. If that thought comes into your head, oh, I can stop anytime I want. Go get help. Quickly, run. Pick up the phone, call. Say, I need help. A terrible thought just came to my mind. I can stop anytime I want. Oops. I've gone too far. I've gone too far. Now, it's interesting that the you know, when, when we um, had this terrible subject of, of incest, we normally, in our modern times, you know, we think about it in terms of protecting children from a, a wicked parent, right? But in this case, this is different. These are, um, you know, of age, of age to be, you know, married, um, you know, women, and, and perhaps even a little further along in that, if they say our father is in old age, um, and so it's interesting, their motivation isn't evil. Their motivation is the lineage of their father. Now for us in our culture, that's a little bit hard to understand, but here, there's a tremendous cultural value in these times and a tremendous cultural desire throughout the, throughout the world you know, of, in, in many places still today, of, you know, lineage, lineage being important, passing on, you know, the family um, genes and passing on the family name um, are important, um, important things still today. Um, but not as much in our culture. So it's hard for us, like, we can't really comprehend that people would go to such, you know, terrible lengths to pursue lineage. We have a hard time, you know, comprehending um, that sort of thing. But here, they do this. What we need to understand is that though Lot was different than the people of Sodom um, and Gomorrah, that he made a serious miscalculation in his life. Lot made a serious miscalculation in his life. He miscalculated the amount of influence, of cultural influence, that Sodom and Gomorrah would have on himself. Because remember, when he first picked, when there was too many sheep and uh, you know his herdsmen and, and Abraham's herdsmen were, were bickering and fighting, and Abraham says, you go which way you want to go and I'll go the other, you pick. See, at that point in his life, you know, Lot was used to 
living in tents and being a herdsman and, um, you know, kind of roughing it. He goes to the city and he gets comfortable, right? He goes to the city, he gets comfortable. And even when he has to leave, he says, oh, let me go to this little place. Don't send me back up to really what he had grown up with. But send me, you know, let me go to this little city. You see, that cultural influence had a big impact on Lot's life. And I don't think he, he um, comprehended the type of influence that the culture, that the world would have on his daughters. And how it would affect how they would think. And what they would do. You see, he was focused on enjoying all the wealth and the prosperity and being a respected person and all the trappings of the world that he had there in Sodom and did not calculate the spiritual and moral price. So the question for us today as we talk about application is, so how do we avoid making the same great miscalculation with our own lives and with the lives of our own children? Everybody get the application point here? How do we avoid making the same great miscalculation with our own lives and with the lives of our own children? You see, Jesus knew that we would be in the world. To remember the early church was in Ephesus and in Corinth and in Rome. See, places of great sin and debauchery. Places of great sin. And that created a whole set of temptations and problems and persecutions for the early church. But it's interesting that we don't find in the scripture a call for the early church to leave those cities. You see, they were supposed to come out from them and be separate, you know, separate in you know, their identity, you know, in Christ, in their separate in their their holiness, separate in their morals and their ethics and in their perspective, and they were supposed to be separate in that they would be willing to suffer for the cause of God in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Rome. Now, individual families may have been called to, or had to flee at different times because of the levels of persecution that they in, endured. But we never find in the New Testament an instruction, hey, all you believers who live in this wicked place called Corinth, you need to move. You need to get out and go to a place where you can be, everybody thinks like we think. 
We, we don't see that. We don't see that in the scripture. So we, um, again, it's a, you know, there are decisions that each, um, you know, family and sometimes in certain circumstances, even whole churches are, have no choice. But, you know, if we, if we are, we're going to be slaughtered and some stay and are slaughtered and, and some flee and, and each should do as God has instructed. As we see in a historical perspective. But you see, Jesus knew we would be in the world. And so one of his prayers for his disciples, when he prays in John 17, and I'll pick up his prayer in verse 13, he says, but now I come to you, that's the father. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Where do we have our joy fulfilled? Well, we have our joy fulfilled in the words of Jesus. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because... They are not of the world. We shouldn't be surprised if the world hates us, folks. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. You see that? I don't pray that you should take them out of the world. But that you should keep them from the evil one. See, we shouldn't, you know, yes, we want Jesus to return. But until the Lord returns, you know, we're going to be in the world. But our prayer is, Lord, keep us from the evil one. Keep us from temptation. Keep us from sin. Keep us from thinking and participating in the world's sin. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. What does sanctify mean? To separate them. Not physically. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for they, their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So Jesus is set apart so that we would be set apart, so that we would know the truth. The question that we have to ask ourselves today is, are we sanctified? This is, are, are we set apart from the world or are we too much of the world? Jesus continues to pray, and you know that prayer, you know specifically for the disciples. Though there's application for us, that's specifically in that prayer for the for the disciples at the present time. And then he says, "I do not pray for these alone." In verse twenty, John seventeen twenty, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me. That they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made complete in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now, some of you, be where, where this goes, some of you might get mad at me this morning. I might get mad at me this morning. I'm preaching myself this morning. As much as I preach to anybody else. See, here's the problem. I'm going to preach this, the rest of this message. What you'll have to understand is, the scripture says, let not many of us be teachers, knowing we shall receive a greater condemnation. Like, I'm held more accountable. And so I have to take these words very seriously. 
But you also, if you're like, I am a follower of Jesus, you and I together, we have to take these words seriously. That there is unity, but not a, not just an abstract unity, but a unity in Jesus and in his truth. And that's the only truth there is. There aren't all these different truths to speak your truth and all this nonsense. There is the truth of Jesus Christ. We need to be united in the truth of Jesus Christ. Full stop. Any unity that is not, as far as the church is concerned, any unity that is not in the unity of the teaching of Jesus Christ is just an illusion. But the Lord prays for us because he knows we to be in the world that the world may believe that you sent me. See, we need to live in such a way that the world says, yeah, we believe that Jesus was sent from the Father. How do we know that? Because of how Jesus' followers live their lives. Even if we don't want it to be true, even if we still ultimately reject Jesus, we shouldn't be able to deny how they live. Because how they live is so radically different than how the world lives. So how do we keep ourselves unspotted from the world? How do we keep ourselves pure when we are constantly pressed that we need to believe things and agree with things and promote things that are contrary to what the word of God says? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beg you, Listen to, listen to the apostle. He, the apostle says, I beg you. He says the same thing to us this morning. I beg you. Brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what are we supposed to do? How do we live differently in this world from the world? Well, we are to present our bodies, our whole selves as a living sacrifice. You know, we're not the type of sacrifice that goes onto the altar and is killed and it's done and it's just over. No, a living sacrifice, a constant sacrifice. Holy. There's a word. Holy. We're to to strive to be holy as God is holy. We can only do that in His power and in humility. But we need to strive to live in a way that is acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. Which is reasonable. If you believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead and you have gone at his feet and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I deserved hell, but you paid my price. I deserved hell. But Jesus, you paid my price on the cross. I couldn't earn it. I couldn't do anything good to make my way to you. There was no way I could pay my own debt of sin. But Jesus, you paid it. 
I believe in you. You died for me. You rose from the dead. I received your gift. You see, that's that's the, the step that has to get taken first. That's the step of salvation, of being a new creation, of being born again without humility at the feet of Jesus saying, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. There is no salvation. There is just a mental agreement of facts. You see, this is the problem today. We have millions of people in this country who would tell you that there is a true and living God, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that Jesus rose from the dead, and they agree mentally, but they're still going to hell. They're still going to hell because they haven't said, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And I don't mean saying those exact words, but the attitude of the heart. Saying, I couldn't do any good to save myself. And I had to surrender from the deepest core of who I am. Not just agree to an academic test. It's not just about agreeing with some, some facts. It's about a humbling of one's heart before the Lord. Save me. Save me, oh God. And if you've never gotten in that place in your life when you've gotten on your, on your knees before the Lord and said, save me, oh God, I'm a sinner. I beg you to do it where you are right now. Because without that, the rest of it is like fighting the wind. The rest of it is, is trying to live a a moral life, but without the power. Without really being a new creation and without the power of the Holy Spirit active in your life and the conviction of the Holy Spirit of what's right and wrong. Folks, any idea that we live in a Christian nation, that the majority of people in this nation are Christians and are going to go to heaven when they die, is a lie the enemy wants us to believe. Because then, if we believe that, then we're not going to be trying to share with all of our neighbors and friends and family. Because we're just going to have this illusion that, oh, well, you know, most people are going to be okay. No, most people are going to hell. Jesus said it. I didn't say it. Jesus said the way is broad that leads to the destruction. There are many on it. And the way that leads to life is narrow and that there are few, few. You see, if you have a problem with what I just said, take it up with Jesus. Because he's, I'm just quoting him. You see, here's what I'm going to tell you folks. This is, you got to understand this. See, most people in our country are okay with the fictitious Jesus that they've made up in their own minds. But I I believe that 95% of Americans, 95%, if transported back in time and actually had to listen to everything Jesus said and how he said it, would hate his guts. Would hate his guts. 
most people, and that's not just Americans, that's most people in the world, if they actually listened to what Jesus said and he preached to them as he preached to the people in Capernaum and in Galilee, that just like the people of Capernaum and Galilee, they would reject him and they would hate his guts. Jews people are so much different today than they were then. You see, people people are fine with the fictitious Jesus that they've made, where they can quote one or two verses or have one or two scenes. They can, you know, understand. And they just say, you know, they, they, you know, Jesus taught us to love one another. Okay. He did. He absolutely did. But read everything he wrote. Or every, everything that was written that he recorded that he actually said. Look at the crowd's response. Look how many were there just for, you know, they were there for the healing or they were there for the food. But then when he gave them a hard word, what did they do? They walked away. They rejected him. The majority did. And a few said, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, folks, that hasn't changed. The problem is that we've bought into this illusion that that has all changed. And so we don't have a desperation about us because we've bought into the lie that most people are just okay. And so we don't go through life like we're on a sinking ship, but we actually know where the life raft is. And we need, you know, the life straps are, we, we need to tell everybody. No, we're just like, well, it's okay. We'll just slowly drift on down. So in that we've lost our sense of urgency. And here's the thing, and, and, and that part, I didn't really actually plan on getting to more this morning. But what, what my heart that we've got to address this morning, and this is the part where I don't like what I'm about to say, and I don't like, you're not going to like what I have to say. When we talk about Jesus said that we need to be in the world, but not of the world, you know, that we're going to be in the world, but we, but he prays for us to be kept from the evil one. You see, historically, this is how this has gone down. See, historically, for true believers in Jesus, you were in the world, in your work. And you were in the world, a lot of times, in your academics. And you were in the world, a lot of times, through your sports. And you were in the world in all these things in your life. But when you went home, see, home was a refuge from the world. See, home and the fellowship of believers, other believers in the community, that was refuge. That was renewal. See, those are the home and the church family were places of refuge and renewal from the world. 
Is that true in our homes? Or is this closer to reality? Our homes are the world. Is this closer to reality? Our homes are just the world brought into our homes. That our homes are not a place of refuge and renewal because we bring the world into our home the majority of our waking hours that we are in the home. Through entertainment, through our televisions, through social media, we're we're, we're so far addicted we don't even know we're addicted. <laughs> we we are the classic. Oh, I could turn that off anytime I wanted to. Could you? Could could you go a week without TV? Could you go a week without watching the show? Did you go a week without looking at Facebook or Instagram? I'm just—I'm not telling you to do it. I'm, I'm just asking a question. Could you? How hard would it be? How hard would it be to put your phone on airplane mode or on emergency mode or whatever? Just like no, there'll be take all the apps off, whatever. All it can get is like you know a real connection of you know pick up a phone and talk to somebody or or, or text people that are you know in, in your life but other than that no, no social media for a week could you do it no TV for a week could you do it we're, we're addicted to the point that we deny we're addicted we're in the, we're, we're in the, if there is a if we were a patient we'd be in the denial phase just we don't have a problem. What you talking about problem? I can stop this anytime I want. Really? And it's not just about, here's the thing. It's not just about that it's a show or it's social media or it's whatever it is. It's the content as well. It's the content. What's our standard for content? Well, I think the Bible has given us a standard of content. If we read Philippians 4.8, it says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is anything, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. These things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Is this our standard for for what we partake in, in our homes? You see, because if this is your entertainment standard where things are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and good report and virtue and praiseworthy, yeah, we might still need to pay attention to the, to the, um, 
quantity of it. But if that's the quality of it, I mean, praise God. But, but which of us can say that? Which of us can say Philippians 4.8 is the standard for what my children watch and what my children partake in. And it's the standard for what I watch and the standard that I partake in. I'm going to say it by myself a lot of times, guilty. I try real hard for my kids. Not, not nearly as hard enough for myself. That's true. But then here's the thing. Whatever I watch and partake and participate in and enjoy, would I be a bit surprised if when my kids are 18, 19, 20, 25, 30, if they don't do the same or take it a step further? Would I be shocked at that? Of course I wouldn't be shocked at that. Why? Because there's that. Of course I wouldn't be shocked at that. You see, folks, a lot more stuff is caught than taught. We can tell our kids to be careful, but if we're not careful, they'll catch us not being careful. A lot more is caught than taught. You see, we can tell our kids not too much moderation, but they watch our lives. A lot more is caught than taught. You see, we can tell them, don't use the Lord's name in vain. That's not a good thing to do. But if we're watching shows where the Lord's name is used in vain habitually, hey, you know what? A lot more is caught than taught. See, if we, if we can tell them they need to be careful of lies what they see and we really want to, we really care about their, their, you know, their, their innocence and their purity in life. But if we're watching things we shouldn't, you know what? More is caught than taught. And I would go back to the same exact thing. If, if having alcohol in your home meant that you were getting drunk and your children were getting drunk, you'd be better off not to have any of it, right? I mean, that'd be pretty simple. Uh, we, we just go with nothing. Because if we can't handle it and then we can't keep our kids from it, well then, hey, this has got to go. That seems like a pretty simple, easy decision, right? Folks, here's the deal. If we can't live out Philippians 4.8 when it comes to our entertainment, if we can't do that for our children and for ourselves, then we got to be willing to make some radical changes. I'm not super hopeful that we will. Because we're pretty doggone addicted. And we're pretty much in denial about that addiction. Guilty. I can stop whenever I want. Oh, can I? Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Folks, if our kids are out in the world all the time, if we're out in the world all the time, 
if our homes and our church family is not a place of restoration and refuge and renewal, how are we going to make it out there? If we bring out there into here and act like that's not a problem, how are we going to make it out there? And how are we going to be salt and light? The reality is we won't. We'll be corrupted salt. And we'll be lights hidden under a basket. I don't think you want that for your legacy. I don't think I want that for my legacy. I don't want that that we've passed on from generation to generation. You don't either. But unless we are willing to make significant changes, we're going to turn around when we're 50, 60 years old and go, how did I get like this? And you're going to look at your kids when they're 20 and 30 years old and go, how did that happen? Folks, it's not a mystery. Do not be conformed to this world. If we are being conformed to this world, we are missing our calling. And here's the thing, because folks, I'm not asking you to have a boring life. I don't want a boring life. But don't you think that life that God has us to live is actually what's going to bring us the most fulfillment? Or do we believe Satan's law that, yeah, you want some God, but don't be too serious about it because you're going to miss out on so much of our good stuff over here. Can we ask God to take the FOMO away? Can we ask God, God, please take the FOMO out of my life. Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. Lord, please take the FOMO out of my life and please take the FOMO out of my kids' lives. Fear of missing out. Please take it away from me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't want to turn around in so many years like Lot and go, how did I get here? And how did my daughters get here to this place? while, Lord, it might be that egregious, anything that isn't of you grieves your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we don't want to grieve you. So, Lord, Lord Jesus, you had to be willing to be separate and different. You had to be willing for people to hate you to the point of putting you at the cross, but yet you willfully did that for us to pay for our sins, and we thank you, Lord Jesus. 
As we take the bread and the cup this morning, remember you, Jesus. Pray, Lord, please help us. Lord, I pray we would have serious. Lord, anybody here or listen online this morning with the question, Lord, do I know you? That if they can't ask that, answer that 100% with confidence, yes, Jesus, you're my Savior. You have forgiven me of my sins, and I thank you that, Lord, if they can't say that with 100% confidence, that they wouldn't rest this morning until they can. That they would go to your feet, dear Jesus, and ask you for forgiveness and surrender to you. As we take the bread and the cup this morning, we remember your great sacrifice from us, Lord, sanctify us. By your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify us, Lord. And help us not to be content with the less than that this world offers us. Lord, breed in us a spirit of discontentment that if we are not pursuing your holiness, that we would be utterly discontent. That we would actually be miserable if we're not pursuing your holiness. Lord, in my life, let it be. And I pray, Lord, you would give others of us the courage to pray that same thing this morning. Lord, let me be miserable if I'm not for you. In your ways. Don't leave me in a place of mediocrity. Don't leave me loving the things of this world, but Lord, put in me discontentment and miserableness. If I'm not close to you, that it would drive me back to your arms, dear God. Work in our hearts and our minds. Renew us, we pray, and help us not to be conformed to the wickedness of this world. In your name, Jesus, we ask. Amen.